Coming up next, the book thing reads Hamlet. Podcast or not to podcast, that is the question, folks, and we decided to podcast today, because we are not melancholy Danes, we are decisive Americans. My name is Nathan, I'm your humble and obedient and decisively American host. Oh, and look at that, walking in late, we've got Jake. Wait, Nathan. What? Do you see that figure that just wandered into the room? But soft. Is it just... Is it just my eyes, or do you see it too? There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Brandon. So I've, I've and those things are named Jake Mensel. Yeah, he's right there. That's right. He's joined us on the golden ticket to quality infotainment. He is more than can be dreamt of in philosophy. Right, indeed. He's a bunch of he's fartles that we bear. Hmm, good old fartles. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> We all deal with them. <laughs> the old fartles. What's a fartle? You would ask that question. Oh, Brandon, you don't know? It's a, it's a zero it's a stars. Zero stars. It's just, a, it's just a burden. It's something heavy that you carry. Who would fartles bear when he himself might a quietus make with a bear bodkin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We're going to be talking about making quietuses with bear bodkins, folks. We're going to be talking about fartles. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things because this is the first official non-prelude Hamlet podcast as done by your friends at the Booking. We are, of course, the golden ticket to quality infotainment. Now, Jake, you actually crept ghost-like into this podcast before I could introduce the other fella. So would you like to bring him on stage so he can strut and fret and uh, do all that stagey stuff. He's but a player on this yep. stage. On our stage. On our poor stage. Yep. All the world yeah. is but a stage. He's Brandon Chastain. He is the scholar who's a baller of books. Mm-hmm. That I am. That you are. I suppose. Oh, Brandon. And he dreams you. about things in his philosophies. That's what he does. Do you dream yep. about things in your philosophies, Brandon? I do, but Jake is beyond those things. Well, Jake's got a lot of fartles. Yeah, those things are hard to carry. Yeah. I guess it's nice to know that I'm not dreaming about Jake. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> You're not capable of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you don't want to dream about a guy with a bunch of fartles. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a personal issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, folks, what, what other famous lines from Hamlet? How many famous lines from Hamlet can we name off the top of our head? That's fun. Uh, well, Alas, poor you. I wonder who could get I the. Well. <laughs> I wonder who could get the farthest and be or not to be. Oh man, my brain is not working all that well tonight, guys. Oh, you're just making that excuse. I bet your brain's working great. You don't have any fartles, Brandon. We we often have referred to Brandon as old fartleless Brandon. 
That is usually what I get called. Oh, farterless, yeah. farterless, farter, farter, farterless, <laughs> farter, farter, farterless, Brandon. Yeah. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea and by opposing end them. A sea, sea of, of troubles, troubles and by opposing troubles in them. In them. To die, to sleep, no more. No, to sleep, perchance no, to dream. To, to sleep, perchance to dream. No, there's, there's that, no more in there, isn't there? Yeah, but it's later. To die, to sleep. To sleep, no perchance more. to dream. No, I, no, I no, think, no, no, that's, I think that you're skipping. skipping. Yeah. I'm skipping die, or he's skipping? Sleep. You're skipping, Jake. It's to, to, to die, to sleep, to sleep no, more. no more. And by, and by a sleep, sleep to say, uh-huh. yeah. There's, uh, we end the heartache. The thousand natural heartaches that fleshes air the natural, air thousand too. natural shocks that flesh, yeah. The fleshes air shocks too. that fleshes air too. And then he says, <laughs> to die. It's a consummation devoutly to be wished. Yes. yes. To the consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to um, sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. There you go. The, aye, uh, there's the rub. Sleep of death, what death, dreams, what may, dreams come. may come when we have shuffled, shuffled off this, up this mortal coil. Mortal coil. Uh, it's a fun, it's a little known fact that he's actually smoking a brisket in this scene. Mm-hmm. Because he misplaces the rub for his barbecue <laughs> and he finds it at that point. Aye, there's, says, the oh, aye, there's the rub. <laughs> so, <laughs> man, quality barbecue humor right there. Yeah. <laughs> barbecue humor. There's, there's just not enough of it in this podcast. Shuffle okay. off this mortal coil. That's in there somewhere. Yeah, no, we got we got about that far between the three of us. But dreams may come when we have shuffled off this uh, mortal coil. There's the something that makes something of something. Yeah. There's, there's the, the conjecture. There's the. There's no, it must the, give us pause. There's yeah, something that pause. makes calamity of so long life. Yeah. Yeah. And then, he and goes then we've got to bear the whips and scorns of time at some point in the yeah, proud who, man's contumely. Who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of unrequited love. Uh, and a bunch of other crap that we yeah, a whole big bear. list of things and something about a bear bodkin. And then he says, "And who who would fartles bear when he himself his quietest might make with a bear bodkin?" Are you sure that the bear bodkin doesn't come before the fartles? I think the bear bodkin comes after the fartles. <laughs> I think the bear bodkin comes before the fartles. He's got the bear bodkin in his hand. He's got the bear bear bodkin. I know that no traveler returns the the undiscovered country from who's born no traveler returns. Oh yeah, we forgot all about that. Does that come before Bear Bodkin? I think after. That becomes In conscience doth make cowards of us all. That's a good line that's in there. Thus does conscience make count the cowards of us all, and enterprises of great pith and marrow go awry and lose the name of action. But soft ferophilia comes through yonder window or something like that. No, no, Ferrophilia doesn't come through yonder window. All right, I'm looking it up. We'll see how we did. Yeah. He's got a bear bodkin. All right, you ready? Yep. To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing in them, to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, to the consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. I there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity. Of, so we got that far. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, 
The laws delay the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietest make with a bear bodkin. Who would fartles bear? So I was right. Bear bodkin comes before fartles. Yes. Okay. Who would fartles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will. And it makes us bear those bear ills, those ills we, have, we have, then fly to others that we know, that we know not of. of. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Pretty great. All right, now... Because I am nothing if not someone who is in it for the quality infotainment. I am going to read the No Fear Shakespeare version of this. You guys ready for this? Oh, wow. The question is, is it better to be alive or dead? (laughs) (laughs) That is the question. So far, we've got a sophomore uh, in high school analyzing uh, the speech. Yeah, or a, prof- or a professor giving their assignment. The question is, is it better to be alive or dead? Is it nobler to put up with all the nasty things that luck throws your way or that to fight against all those troubles by simply putting an end to them once and for all? Ooh. By committing suicide. Yeah. Dying. Sleeping. That's all dying is. A sleep that ends all the heartache and shocks that life on earth gives us. That's an achievement to wish for. To t- die, to sleep, to sleep, maybe to dream. Ah, but there's the catch. In death's sleep, who knows what kind of dreams might come after we put the noise and commute motion of life behind us. That's certainly something to worry about. (laughs) Sure is. (laughs) That's the consideration that makes us stretch out our sufferings so long. After all, who would put up with all life's humiliation? The abuse from superiors, the insult of arrogant men, the pangs of unrequited love, the inefficiency of the legal system. The rudeness of people in office, the mistreatment of good people that that you have to take from bad people, when you could simply take out your knife and call it quits. Who would choose to grunt and sweat through an exhausting life unless unless they were afraid of something dreadful after death, the undiscovered country from which no visitor returns, which we wonder about without getting any answers from, and which makes us stick to the evils we know rather than rush off to seek the ones we don't. Fear of death makes us all cowards, and our natural boldness becomes weak with too much thinking. Actions that should be carried out at once get misdirected and stop being actions at all. But shh, here comes the beautiful Ophelia. Pretty lady, please remember me when you pray. <laughs> Pretty lady. Pretty lady. Get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> hey, lady. Oh, lady. Here you guys go. Here's another one. It's a, it's a sound paraphrase, but ugh. Yeah, it turns out the poetry really adds something to Shakespeare. I don't know. How you guys <laughs> to feel be about or it. not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. For who would fartles bear till Burnham would King come to Dunes inane? But that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep. Great nature's second course. It makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others that we know not of. Uh, oh, wow. That's good stuff. You know what? That just makes me so sad because. Mark Twain could rely on his audience being literate enough to know to think, to think that was funny. 
Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, of course, everybody knows these quotes. And, you know, not everybody's an expert, but we all kind of know our Shakespeare famous quotes. Not everybody. I can mix them all up. Well, that's my point, Brandon. That's my point. We're a bunch of illiterates. That is my point. That's the bear bodkin. That that's the bear bodkin that makes quietest of us all. I guess you kill yourself with a sewing needle. Is that what he means? <laughs> a bear bodkin? Isn't that what that means? Isn't a bear bodkin just a knife? I think that it has various meanings. Let's look it up. A blunt, there thick needle. Used to be. But let's yep. see, bodkin in Hamlet. alone on the sea. You. An unsheathed dagger. An unsheathed dagger is what it means there, yeah. The light mm. on the dark side of me. Which makes sense why they would both share the same name. Baby, I compare you to a kiss from a rose on the gray. So it is a needle? I wasn't paying any attention. It yeah, I know. Be. You're singing Seal. Great. You know, Shakespeare reminds me of Seal sometimes. <laughs> You know, the, the two great artists of their respective periods. I don't know if Seal's even an artist. It's probably just the name of the band. But, okay. Well, folks, this is the booking. Hey, how many other famous lines from Hamlet can we name? I'm not going to. So there's uh, to be the beer, to not, not to be soliloquy. There's a last poor York. There is. Brevity is the soul of wit. Frailty, thy name is woman. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. I meant to cue that up. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of Hamlet podcasts ahead of you to... Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Yep. To thine uh, own, this above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night, the day. Thou canst not be false to any man. Yep. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Is that from Polonius' speech? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see here. What a piece of work is man? Mm. What a piece of work is man? Methinks the... The lady doth protest too much, methinks. Mm-hmm. Methinks. Doubt thou the stars are fire. Doubt, doubt, doubt thou the sun doth not move. Doth move, but never. Doubt truth to be a liar, liar but never doubt my love. I botched that, but that's in there. I get to thee to a nunnery, we already said. There's more yeah. in heaven and earth a ratio than is contained in your philosophy. What are we missing, Brandon? Did we say all the money quotes? I think you uh, though, quotes. though this be madness, there's method in it. Yeah, that's a great one. Good night, sweet prince. That's uh, another great one. I always, man. Every a lot of time great lines. I, every time I watch, you know. Now cracks a noble heart. The, Hamlet does have some great lines in it. I'm just going to go out on a limb and <laughs> say, I think Hamlet has some good lines in it. That Brandon. limb is... Uh, Reinforced with uh, steel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go out on a steel <laughs> limb. <laughs> I won't be making my quietus by falling from the steel limb. Landing on a bear bodkin. I'm landing on a bear bodkin. <laughs> He's got a bear bodkin. But you do have the fartles. Yeah. You got fartles? You do. I don't have any fartles. You and me are fartleless. Jake's the one Jake called fartles. fartles. Yeah, no, Jake is oh. like Mr. Fartle. He's the father of fartles. He's the fa- he's the fart the the farting the <laughs> the fartling father. The fartling father. 
Uh, this is great. It. This is I'm good so podcasting glad. right here. Hey, yes. I like this podcast so far. And speaking of great podcasting, I'll tell you what goes into great podcasting. Having a contextual Texan give context for Hamlet. Yeah, so. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Hey, that's another one. That is a very true statement. So this is one of Shakespeare's tragedies. Yeah. Now, Brandon, and by the way, is a, the contextual Texan. He's from Texas. He provides a bunch of context on our work. And he is going to provide some context on Hamlet as he already began to do. It's a nihilistic work in some people's opinions. Boo. Yeah. It is deeply introspective and it is about depression and pride and all these things. But the uh, deep isolation and the feeling of the monotony and repetitiousness of life and the meaninglessness of life. And we get to feel that almost every year when we once again for now the sixth time, do a context on Shakespeare. <laughs> you, got you know, Brandon, the play's it. the thing. <laughs> yeah, the play's the thing, man. Yeah. <laughs> the show must go on. Yep. The play's the thing. Well, then let's do this. Yeah, let's do this. So we've talked a lot about Shakespeare. People can go back and <laughs> see, uh, listen to- Brandon, almost... everybody expects you to say something completely original and new and to not repeat a single thing. You well, I are do the Shakespeare of context. I, I do have some things to share today, guys. And that's okay. um, wonderful. So usually the way we go about this is we talk about when he was born and when he died. Mm-hmm. We talk about some of the cultural context surrounding him. We talk a lot about our theories on the way that he viewed craft and writing and the nature of genius. This is true. <sighs> So there you go. There's context for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually what we would be doing right now. But this is a big one, guys. Not just because of Shakespeare, but because this is his most imp- this is his most popular play, and in, I think his most significant as far as the influence it's had. Just of all the various resources I was looking into and interviews I was listening to and stuff like that, this play has been adapted for film. I think more than just... At least once. At least once. I think In more... In The Lion King. In The Lion King, yes. More than any other story except for Cinderella, I think I read one place. Wow. And so this, is his, this was his uh, story that resonated the most with people. So you get references like you get it in Huckleberry Finn, you get it in The Lion King, you get it in all these resources i mean how does it show up even today i'm sure it's showed up in marvel movies right with some thor. of thor yeah thor for sure probably making thor, fun yeah. of thor so does mother know thou wearest her drapes that's mm-hmm. probably a line from hamlet i think yeah and so this has had extra- extraordinary cultural significance yes that came directly from hamlet <laughs> thought so he does hide in the curtains. Yeah. So some arguably without Hamlet, we would not have had that moment. Yeah. So, anyways, and this play kind of does mark the height of Shakespeare's art. It comes right around the most scholars think it was written in 1599, 1600s. And so this would be the high point. So when he was writing this, let's see, he would also have been writing. Let me pull up a list of his works here. Chronology of Shakespeare's works. I had it up here. The Byzantine Empire. Wow. That's not him. 
So this would have been when he was also writing. Are you guys still there? Mm-hmm. Things like Henry V, yep. Julius Caesar, Henry IV. A little bit after this would be King Lear and The Tempest, but, and those are like the, the final achievements of his craft. But this is, this is like, if you were thinking of this in terms of Tolstoy, this is when he wrote his War and Peace. King Lear would be his Anna Karenina. I know you both really loved. Strike that, reverse it. Yep. I know you both really loved King Lear. Well, chronologically, that's the way it would work, because Anna Karenina is after War and Peace. Well, chronologically, my name is Brandon. Well, that's what I do. I provide chronology. It's the one thing I give to this podcast, Nathan. Chronology? And then you get it wrong. One star. I know. Mm -hmm. It's insane. What can I do? Anyways, this guy was born in 1564. You happy? Was he? I got you that sure right. It's not 1546? I think you guys, I don't know. Why don't you spot check my facts as I go? And we can I, correct them if I get it wrong. All right. I'll, I'll spot check, check your facts and correct you if you get it wrong. Wasn't it a Shakespeare S episode that you made your infamous error? It was. On? Yeah. Yeah. Where you said Queen Elizabeth died or was born or something. And something I said, with, I said her you, death you, date wrong. You just inverted like. 36 to 63 or 63 to 36 or something like that. I said 1613 and she died in 1603. I think that's right. what I said. Pulling the facts so, out of thin air. But this play would have been written right at the end of her, uh, towards the end of her reign. In fact, I, I read an interesting thing. That, this is not about Hamlet, but apparently she had an assassination attempt on her in the same year that Julius Caesar came out. Mm. And a lot of people mm. think that Shakespeare was kind of playing off the uh, publicity of that. <laughs> Interesting. And so a lot of the s- resources I use come from Stephen Greenblatt, who he's, if you go back to our uh, criticism episode, he's a new historicist. I think he still teaches at Harvard, but uh, one of the preeminent Shakespeare scholars for a long time. And what I do like about new historicism is that it tries to contextualize the meaning of a work of art within the culture that it came out of. There's a lot of Marxist and neoliberal, not neoliberal, good grief, that's the wrong politics, just liberal progressive agendas that come out of that. But in spirit, there's a lot to agree with. I mean, even C.S. Lewis technically was a new historicist because in the opening to one of his works, he says that the only way you can really know, the only way you can really read the Aeneid is to understand what it would have been like to be Virgil, why it was to have been a Roman. And that's what we love about his essay on the epic, right? Is it really tries to do that. Contextualize for us what it would have been, what it actually means to read Beowulf, what it actually means to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Man, that was a digression. That was a great digression. Because it brings us back to Shakespeare and understanding his time, who he was. And um, in 1564, this would have been in the roughly the middle of Queen Elizabeth's reign, so he was an Elizabethan. Not till his death, he actually outlived her by 13 years. He died in 1616. He was both born and died on April 23rd, most people think. And so it's fun to celebrate his to be or not to be day on April 23rd. If there are any teachers out there with students and like to do that sort of thing. That, that was the day when he was not? Yeah, Same it's day. the day he was both. April 23rd. He oh. was both born and died on April 23rd. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sorry. So okay. it's a fun, it's fun. His dad was a fairly prominent 
figure in the town he grew up in, Avon upon Stratford, or Stratford upon Avon. One star, incorrect. One star. The immortal bard of Avon. I'm just seeing if you guys are awake. Yeah, your quietest make with a bear bodkin. I'm getting the bear bodkin out, guys. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've transferred my fartles to you. Yep. Alas, poor Brandon. Mm. We knew him well. Nothing better than fartles that have been used. What was I saying? Oh, so he was in your fartles. You don't want fresh fartles. (laughs) He grew up in Stratford upon Avon. And he would have went to a day school where he would have learned Latin and basic arithmetic and things like that. But he would have also been introduced to some of the Latin histories, some of the British histories, for example, Plutarch, his lives. A lot of scholars think that he drew things from Plutarch's lives. Another thing, since he was in Stratford-upon-Avon, that he would have seen would have been some of the traveling plays that would have gone from town to town, some of the mystery shows and things such as that. But as we've discussed many times, we don't know a whole lot about Shakespeare. We have his will. I actually found something in this one book that people say they think is his handwriting, which is really fascinating because you can actually see him crossing things out in this text if it really is his handwriting, which goes to prove that he was the type of guy who edited and improved what he wrote. I refuse to believe it. I believe that he only ever spat out perfect genius yeah and i mean it was moment and it wasn't even him it was francis bacon so that's right Mm, poor uneducated idiot that's just because that's just because conservative conservative scholars who don't believe that shakespeare wrote his plays can only think about bacon and so that's the only alternative they can offer if it's not shakespeare then it's who bacon Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) bacon's good (laughs) he must have real real good too yep Hey, there's my rub. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They say it themselves. That is what they say. So we know, well, he got married young at 18 to a woman eight years older than he was, Anne Hathaway, not the actress. Okay. Yeah. She's not. So disappointing. I always think that every time you say that, like, well, Anne Hathaway, he scored big there, right? Yeah. He's his patroness, you know, gave all the acting money to support his Mm -hmm. humble writing craft. And one of our favorite facts is that when he died, his will left his best bed, his second best bed to his wife. Mm-hmm. And some people see that as an attack on her. But those people some, are... Because yeah. the second best bed was usually the marital bed because the best bed was always reserved for guests. So it was in, even in death, the old bard of the love sonnets... The old bard of the love songs. <laughs> As he's known. Yeah. One star. Yep. <laughs> Brendan's a regular bard of context today. Well, he was... Thanks, Nathan. You want me to stop? No, no, Brandon, I love you. You're the bard of love sonnets. Sorry, Anyways, and guess what happened in what? that marital bed? <laughs> Sex. Um, I got they, ideas. They, <laughs> they made two children, at least, Hamnet and Judith. Hamnet? And I wanted to mention that because, yeah, isn't that fun? His name was Hamnet, like Hamlet, without the L and an N instead, Hamnet. No, that would be like if Harrison Ford had a kid named Blindiana Jones. I know. <sighs> Maybe it was the pig's version of internet, Hamnet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Precursor to ham radio. 
Yep. Yeah, Hamnet. <laughs> yeah, Hamnet. Everyone knows Ham Internet came way before Ham Radio. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's what was right in between the Internet and Ham Radio. It's Hamnet. Yeah. I'm glad we have this sort of gold stuff to fill in the cracks here. This is yeah, that's what we do. There's <laughs> not a whole lot to talk about with Shakespeare, you know, it's, guys. It's, it, yeah, well, it's a plaster <laughs> podcast with gold in the cracks. Shortly after this, we know that he did move to London and started a fairly successful career as an actor and also a playwright. There's a reference to him and another uh, playwright. One of the, I think he was one of the university wits at the time. They were just a group of jerks who went around making fun of everybody. But uh, one of them calls him the upstart crow. Most scholars think it was because this guy was jealous. Because here you have this young kid coming to London and making a splash with this stuff that was fairly popular. Uh, and, and to kind of understand why that was uh, possible, we take a quick pause and just talk about the cultural, the culture that surrounded him at the time. Elizabeth succeeded her father, Henry VIII, who had succeeded his father, Henry VII, who had left a great amount of wealth to what was known as the Tudor dynasty. And under Elizabeth, she took the success of her father, Henry VIII. He had split with the Catholic Church, and he had brought some success and wealth to England. That, but under her, you know, there was the defeat of the Spanish Armada, and there was kind of the establishment of England as an up-and-coming superpower in Europe. And so because of that, and because of the rising naval prowess of England, and because of all these other factors, industry, the printing press, and other innovations that were happening, somewhat because this was just right after the Renaissance and this rebirth of knowledge and, and this desire to go out and understand the world through science, all these things that were happening just provided this perfect context for there to be a wealth, literal, I mean, literal wealth, wealth of wealth pouring nice. into England. And this meant that cities like London that in the 1300s and 1400s were a hellscape. I mean, if you ever read anything about the bubonic plague, the one place you didn't want to be was in a city, right? That was like a death sentence at the time. But suddenly cities could start having sanitation measures and they could have all these other things to improve life. You had merchants that were also bringing in more wealth as the, as the world expanded with the voyages to the new worlds. And it was just a really exciting time to be alive. And because of this, London became fairly wealthy. And that meant a lot of people had free time on their hands. And also because of stuff that had happened with the Reformation and things like that, there was more of a libertine take on life. Like art up and through the Middle Ages was usually always do, having to do with the church. Like even the Canterbury Tales, right? was about something that was dealing with the church, even it, though it was body and had some innuendo in it. I was about to say Randy humor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Randy humor actually... We all know better. Randy. Yeah. <laughs> it does get a little Randy, but does, doesn't a chicken end up somewhere that it shouldn't? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen in that book. It's pretty awful stuff. It's not really an innuendo when a chicken ends up somewhere. That's true. It's n Randy humor, I think, it, is more it's appropriate. More, it's more Randy humor, yeah. So there we go. Stuff like that. And, you know, and it, 
there were things like that happening in the Middle Ages. It wasn't just this time of Gregorian chants and everybody sitting around dying of the bubonic plague. They were still people <laughs> with their with, with their lusts and their body humor and stuff like that. I mean, that's I think sometimes that's what people think. The that's what Middle I. Ages that's what were. I like. I like the, I like the of, depictions of the Middle Ages. Everybody yeah. sitting around doing Gregorian chant and dying. <laughs> dying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not but, dead yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and smacking their faces with boards. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. What? One of my my favorite facts that I like about London at this at the time of Shakespeare is its population, because we think yeah. of the old world and old world cities in modern terms. And uh, do you guys know? Do you have a guess? Do you remember what the population of London was? London was, at, I think, at the time of Shakespeare. <laughs> Maybe the biggest city in the world. Yeah, but do you have a guess for what them. that meant, population wise? We talking ten thousand? Um, uh, that's it's quite a bit more than that. Under a hundred thousand? It's two hundred thousand. Hmm. Wow, two hundred thousand. But yeah, so to to compare that, you know, if you took the metro population of Evansville, Indiana, we're one and a half times that. Yeah, that's it's you crazy. Know, um, but that was. And it would be shortly after this that you would begin to have these population booms. And I do think that the population did kind of increase pretty significantly, right? Sort of. Indy's like six or seven times. Indianapolis, Indiana, six or seven times the size of London. But I think think that's even important when we're talking and thinking about the context for some of the great art that's been developed. People always think of art in terms of cities and city centers being the places where they develop, but in a in a city of two hundred thousand people, it's still possible to feel like everybody knows everybody. That's how Evansville feels at three hundred sixty five thousand people. Right. Yeah, it's not hard to have a lot of connections and a lot of opportunities to meet a lot of different people. So you have sort of like the benefit of tons of people to draw off of and feed off of, but you have kind of a smaller market. I think it's easier to thrive right. in a situation like that than. And you're not just an anonymous peon in a, in a right. group of anonymous peons just blending into the scenery. You yeah. have relationships and things yeah. are being cross-hatched between different groups and different people. And we know that Shakespeare took advantage of that because around the same time he began to get some success. And it was actually right before Hamlet came out that he started with 10 other people or nine other people. He owned a 10th of it, the Globe Theater. And, he owned part of it, I think, Hemings, who would eventually, with Hemings and the other guy, do the folio edition in 1623 that we now have, of, like it's the definitive Shakespeare. But yeah, and the word of mouth would spread in London that there was this new awesome playhouse across the Thames, and everybody would go, and they would, and it was a good time at the theater. And a large part of that was because people now had the capital. They had spending money. They could go off and have a day at the theater and uh, enjoy themselves because the Globe Theater, a couple things about it. They built it across the Thames and the Swamplands so that they could avoid some of the censorship laws in London, similar to like Las Vegas with its gambling, or like here in a, Indiana with gambling on the river. It's a way to avoid the censorship. And, you know, theater, even at the time, like it had a little bit of the air of the transgressive about it. And so I think that there was probably also just the element that if it was on the other side of the river and you had to go over there to the uh, seedy part of town that it would still attract 
like bars are usually very mindful about where they open up for the same mm-hmm. reason. But either way, they were over there and they began to become very successful. They did have competitors. Um, I was reading about some of those uh, a couple days ago and one of their competitors decided to just close up shop and basically take their troop back across the river into London because Shakespeare's troop was getting so much uh, popularity and demand. Another interesting thing is apparently their biggest competitors were groups of young boys who were known as being very witty and also good actors that would start some acting troops. And there are some lines in Hamlet that refer to this phenomenon. Actually, I think I've got it right here. Oh, I remember when the troop comes in and he's... Yeah, the troop comes in and Rosencrantz says, he explains, there is, sir, an, an eyrie of children, little Iases, which means young hawks. These are now the fashion. So that's actually a direct reference to the same phenomenon that was happening during Shakespeare's time. Um, but yeah, so it was in this environment. People come into the playhouse. I think the, the biggest example, the the closest example we have nowadays would probably be, and I'm sure certain people would probably hate this comparison, but would be a Hamilton, then the success of Hamilton. Yep. It was a big production. And they would, depending on who, where they, so they would take their show occasionally on the road and they would go travel to the houses of nobles, like to their manor houses and put on huge productions. And there was this one famous uh, set designer who would go and he would make really elaborate sets for them. And so it could be like a pretty awesome show that they would put on. In fact, in this one book, Will in the World, if anybody's really interested in kind of diving into a brilliant narrative of what it would have been like to have lived during Shakespeare's time. It's really wonderful. It's by Stephen Greenblatt. It's called Will in the World. And it gives a story about what it would have been like to have been at one of those shows at one of these noblemen's houses. But the Globe Theater was different. It was designed in such a way as the nobles could sit up on top. And then the theater stage itself protruded out into the area where the audience would stand and, you know, they would be standing there and they would be drinking their beer and they would be, just be having sometimes a very raucous time while they were in the middle of these productions. Even in a tragedy, there would often be breaks between acts for some of the men to come out and drag and do some dances. And so it was just a very, it was not the sort of, I think that a lot of people, when they think of Shakespeare, they think of going to the symphony, right? Americans have mastered the... Let's make it seem like a rich, suited event. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what it was like at the time to go to the Globe Theater. Now, maybe at a nobleman's house, yes, it would have been that way. But in the Globe Theater, no, that's not what it would have been like really at all. It was a, it was a day at the theater, and people were there to have a good time. In fact, one of the few writings we have about someone who actually saw a Shakespeare play said he went to see Julius Caesar... And there were some lovely dances at the end by the actors. And so it wasn't just the play. They also had these intermissions and these other things that were happening as well. Hamlet itself was written, like I said, in 1599 or 1600. We, we have it today in three versions. There's a 1603 version. There's a 1604 version. And then there's the 1623 kind of definitive version that Hemings and Condell put out. And they were friends of Shakespeare. And at the time, what would happen is occasionally a publisher would get their hands on 
the a script and they would publish it in what was either a quarto or a folio version, depending as the quartos were smaller than the folios. And they would sell these because the printing press had just about a, a century earlier revolutionized the capabilities. You guys hear that? Yes. Yeah. Anyways, the printing presses had revolutionized the ability for these things to go out to the public. And so you would sometimes have authorized versions. Even more often, you would have people who would go and listen to a play, and they would be paid to go and try to, from memory, write down the play as they had heard it. And so one of the challenges of scholars is finding which of these things is the accurate copy, you know. And how would you begin to approach that task? They have their ways. They compare manuscripts. So like the three that they kind of know are the versions of Hamlet that we can use today are the 1603, the 1604, which were authorized, or at least they were uh, trustworthy sources. And the 1623, that's Hemings and Condal, and we know that that's pretty reliable. But even then, those three sources have pretty significant textual differences from one another. And so it matters even when you're looking at what play you're reading. And uh, for those who really want a deep dive into this, you can buy the Arden Hamlet, which gives you all three together. There's a little plug for the Arden. If you want to read like half a line of the text... And, and then, then a whole page and then have of notes. a whole page a whole... and a half of notes. Who wouldn't want to read that? To be, and then there's like a page, a yeah. couple pages of notes, or not. And then there's, I mean, it, that's barely. It's about like why does that? Those. Why does that not sound enjoyable? Well, you know, if you like Shakespeare, then it's not that enjoyable to just read a bunch of notes. But well, I, in my opinion, you should have multiple sources. I have my Oxford edition of Shakespeare that I actually read when I want to read. Mm-hmm. But when I want to do research, I use my Arden. Yep. Well, any go. anytime that I'm so going to So if you like research, watch, then fine. Yeah. But if, if you, you like feel like you're ever cool going to be things, in a position then... where, yeah. Oh, the Arden's pretty cool. But if you... <laughs> if you're into research. <laughs> if you're into research. So anytime really... I want to watch a movie, I want to have a couple TVs and I want one TV to be playing yeah. the documentary about how so, they made the movie. And, the... and then I want the movie... Like yeah, the commentary playing. The well, you don't do it. Commentary. Commentary. You don't read. And then I want the actors, this. you know, talking about different scenes, sort of like synced up. Right. And yeah, I, I mean, my wife to read the back of the Blu-ray as I watch the movie. I find it really. And then I want Roger moment. Ebert or somebody like that going along and providing critical analysis. Right. It's Mike. the only way to watch a movie. Only way. Oh boy, there's the a time. Way. There's a time to do research, and then there's a time to enjoy the play. You don't do it at the same time. We've talked about all these editions in the past, and I think if you enjoy the research, I highly recommend Arden, but for most people, I don't think you should buy the Arden. There, there's Thanks. more to Shakespeare than is contained in your philosophies, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> but for anyone who wants to be as awesome as me, go and buy yourself an Arden Shakespeare. <laughs> No, I'll agree with that. Anyone who wants to be as awesome as Brandon can buy themselves an art and shake And you will be as or awesome as Brandon. Be. Yeah. 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 To be it is awesome a question. There is only one Brandon Chastain. <laughs> Were you just doing a Highlander? Yeah. <laughs> one of Shakespeare's great late masterpieces. So anyways, Hamlet. Hamlet. We know that it was first performed in about 1599, 1600, like I said. Blah, 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 blah. This is like the Arden Brandon's 
Well, do you just want to read context. the play out loud then? What I mean, what 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 do you want? I'm just providing notes here. I'll tell people you st- you just give the context. I'll describe the shirt that you're wearing and give people broader context about your context. All right, here we go. One, two, three. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, you describe Brandon currently, and I'll start talking about Brandon's history and past. Oh, that's a good oh, idea. Oh, wow. That'll really add to the context. Yeah. Yeah. Because people um, need the context for the context. Right. In the context for the context, that's context. I think I'm getting off. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> Brandon, the Arden edition's great. It's good. I'm glad you like to research stuff and read notes. Hey, we things. wouldn't have this episode. No, we wouldn't Arden. have this show without nope. Arden and without your. Yeah. But guess what, guys? Research. I am I am to the point now where I don't I, I don't recommend that everybody buy an Arden Shakespeare. Yeah, I don't think it's a productive. I don't think it's a productive book for everybody to have. Mm-hmm. I think you should get the Penguin editions. Those are really great. If you're looking for a single volume, the Pelican, I think, is what their imprint. Those are really nice little versions, and they have just enough notes to help you understand some of the words like bodkin and farter or whatever it is. So when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, he was actually drawing from a prior history of other Hamlet plays. In fact, there's an interesting thing I read where probably in the 1580s, which would have been about a decade before he wrote his Hamlet, Hamlet... There was a version by Thomas Kidd and some of those university wits, the same guys who called Shakespeare an upstart crow, made fun of these Hamlet narratives. It kind of became synonymous with, oh, what would be a movie series today that would be synonymous with overblown melodrama and kind of just silly schlock? Lifetime? Yeah, stuff like that. And so the Hamlet story was kind of known for that, just kind of being overblown and melodramatic. And so what most scholars think is that around 1599, probably one of, you know, the Globe was doing really well. And one of his acting troop partners came and said, hey, Shakespeare, time is right. Let's do Let's do like the art house version of Hamlet, right? Let's actually do it and let's make it work this time. And so they did. He wrote Hamlet and it was innovative in the sense that it was able to, with Hamlet, and we'll talk a lot about this, That's the, the, we're not going to do it on context, but with Hamlet, he was able to master this craft that he would also continue with King Lear and The Tempest, where it's all about, through monologue and dialogue, revealing the inner thoughts and kind of a very deeply psychoanalytical Um in a way that his earlier plays weren't as much. And so this is kind of the revolutionary period in Shakespeare's art. A lot of scholars see this as a turning point to where it would lead into his great final works, marked by Hamlet, uh, King Lear, and The Tempest. Those are usually seen as his three masterpieces. So, and which we've done every one of those except The Tempest now, right? Have we done The Tempest? No. Mm, No, that's still ahead of us. That's going to be a tempestuous year. Golden Ticket. To quality infotainment. Thank you, Nathan. One inter- one fun fact uh, that I heard from someone is that tragedies at the time, so we have Hamlet, we have Othello. There was a tradition at the time of naming the tragedies after the tragic hero. And comedies would usually get a broader title, such as, like, you know. Merry Wives of Windsor. Yep. Or, 
And that was not just Shakespeare. That was actually kind of the standard way of titling things at the time. Maybe about one-sixth of the plays from the period actually still exist because all the others were lost because no one cared to go in and memorize the whole thing and go and write it down. Or another interesting fact too. So do you guys know where the term role comes from? Like an actor's role? Like how we got that idea or term? So we've talked about kind of the print, the history of printing and how it affected the Shakespeare that we have now. And so even though we had the printing press, it was still pretty expensive to publish a folio, like just, uh, you know, a quarter, uh, a half a century earlier with Henry VIII, when he broke from the church in England, they were able to print Bibles and it was kind of revolutionary for Henry VIII to do this and put them in the churches so people could go and read them in English. But they still had to chain them down to the lecterns because they were expensive to produce, right? And so it was still a it was still a developing technology. And so they could produce these folios and quartos, but they were still kind of expensive. And so the way that the playhouses could get around this was they would take the actors' exit and entrance cues and all their lines, and they would glue them together and then roll them up and give them to each actor. And that was their role. Huh. Isn't that really interesting? That is interesting. And so another reason they would have wanted to do this, of course, was the intellectual property. They didn't want all... It's kind of like, you know, with... Even Marvel does this, right? Like, only Thor, actor, he only gets his part. He doesn't get to see everybody else's lines and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want want the people to be able to take it and run to the the nearest publisher and print Shakespeare's new play, right? Even though they knew inevitably because they didn't have that sort of intellectual property law at the time, somebody was going to go in and steal it just by memorizing it and going out and um, doing it that way. But yeah, and so that's that's kind of the surroundings to how Hamlet came into existence. There was a long line of Hamlets before it, and this was kind of the crowning achievement of the Hamlets. It kind of marked a, a change and a high point in Shakespeare's craft as a writer. So it'll be interesting. So these will be some talking points as we move into the play, because we've read several of his works now. Mm-hmm. Like, how is this different than some of the other stuff we've looked at? How is it sa- similar to King Lear? It does have a lot of similarities to King Lear. And then also, just the cultural surroundings behind the play that brought into an existence. So that's really all I've got for Hamlet. We've know we've talked about the fact that this has had a long life after the play, and that there have been many, 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 many many retellings and it is so deeply woven into our artistic psyche as a culture that pretty much everything in some way is a reference to hamlet i'm sure and so that alone makes this his i mean this is his crowning achievement as far as the lines that we can quote from it the importance of the story all these things even if it's not your favorite shakespeare play i don't really think you can argue against it being the most important of the shakespeare plays so in our usual context, there are a couple other things we usually touch on, like the fact that we think that Shakespeare actually did exist. That's we do. That we have to trust on that, yeah. And um, everything that's generally credited to him. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple examples of where he co-wrote things with other playwrights, but generally speaking, he wrote what we think he wrote. And there are a lot of really smart people out there who believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare and they spend their whole life studying him. And, you know, yes, they are mostly liberals and progressives, but. Well, unfortunately, 
the elitist conservatives, our very own group, decided that Shakespeare couldn't be Shakespeare because he was a man of the people. So, which is a uh, really weird way for them to have gone. Yeah, I can't stand it. Yeah. It's embarrassing to be associated with it, quite frankly. So, the simplest argument in my book is the fact that almost a, so many of the great writers of the past pretty much came from nothing and they just had that genius ability to observe the world around them and an incredible gift for language. You mix those two together and you get a Shakespeare or a Tolstoy or someone like that or a Charles Dickens. <clears throat> I hate all that stuff. All, the, all those kinds of textual arguments where they're like, the style's different in this work than the other work? It's like, dude, That's have you ever looked at your emails from five years ago? Like, yeah. What'd you say? That, that's the argument I hate the most, too. And it is that. It's yeah. like, go back and read something you wrote five, ten years ago. Read and, texts that you sent a year ago. I mean, honestly. Just or like, open your text right now and look at the difference between the text that you send to your pastor versus the text that you send to your wife versus the text that you send to your boys. Like, yeah, they sound very different. And there's a reason for that. And for somebody who's a master of creating characters and inhabiting them, to pretend like that guy can't write a play in a different tone and style or try to do something that feels completely different, I mean, come on, the opposite would be true. Yeah. Anybody that anybody creative enough to write Hamlet is going to be not trying to reproduce Hamlet for the rest of his life. It's going to be, what else can I do? What's different? How do I break this? How do I bend this? How do I do something new or cool? Like, this is the way it goes with anybody with that kind of creativity. And part of why I think it's really stupid that conservatives and conservative Christians get on this rant is because it's the same arguments that are used against the authorship of the Apostle Paul. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't know. Let's think about it. Will the Apostle Paul write the same way he, he did, you know, at the beginning of his ministry or 10 years later? Would he write to Timothy, his true son in the faith, differently than he would write to the Corinthian church? I mean, come on. No. He only had one style that he could possibly use. And if he deviates that from that at all, it must be because somebody else wrote it. Yep. Ignorant and arrogant. The amount of hubris it takes to go against thousands of years, or in the case of Shakespeare, hundreds of years of history and tradition and common sense. Yeah, because you think is, that you've got an, a special angle on something. It is. It is so snobby, and the whole mid-century snotty, you know, William Buckley crowd. They are just a bunch of elitist snobs. <sighs> uh, well, you know who wasn't an elitist snob, and this is the last thing we generally touch on with Shakespeare. What's Shakespeare? Bill. Bill. Old Bill. It's just always nice every time we approach Shakespeare to remember that we as Americans have inherited this romantic, meaning the 1800s idea of what genius is, that it's some sort of, and granted, you know, the Greeks and all those people had this idea of the muses and this gifting that people would have, a talent, but it was still different than this priest-like, god-like sense of genius that we have inherited to where the artist can the artist has some significant purpose that they've been given in this world and 
this burden that they carry. And there's just all this weight and responsibility we put on artists that is, uh, that is, you know, even it's what, oh man, the gay, oh, leaves of grass. My brain is really tired. Well, women. Thank you. Kept wanting to say Longfellow, but that's not right. <laughs> Opposite extremes. Mm-hmm. Walt Whitman, thank you. I could remember the name of his work, but not his name. That is really strange. One star. Uh, yeah. He's good to know who Walt Whitman is. Yeah. He said that poets were the new priests of the world. And we now have this, both with our celebrity culture and just also, all, we're, we're always looking for people to make the world mean something to us. And so we've now given that burden to our artists, right? And it's just not the way it was in the Elizabethan age. Poets and playwrights would have been seen as just a member of one of the crafts, one of the guilds. And what they would have been similar to would have been any other craftsman. And they were just out there to do their job. And the job here was to entertain all those people at the Globe in the best way possible. I like Greenblatt's theory that Shakespeare was, you know, felt this challenge to take a schlocky story and make it really work and knock it out, and he knocked it out of the park, you know? And so there was the other challenge, you know, could I craft something beautiful out of this melodramatic pile of rubbish that other people had struggled with? I mean, and so... But there is still that element of craftsmanship. And one of the arguments for this is we do have some of the folios where there are lines and stuff crossed out and there are changes from folio to folio. And it's probably not all just because somebody misheard a line and then went out and tried to write it down. It's probably because Shakespeare actually was experimenting and changing his lines from performance to performance because he was always trying to perfect and make it better because he wasn't precious about his work and he approached it like the craft that it was and not some oracle of genius that could never well, change. And if, you've, and if you've watched, if you've seen, you know, we do a movies podcast, Sanity at the Movies. There's no, there's no movie where the actors don't end up shaping and reshaping lines. Mm-hmm. And directors and writers work with the actors. And the actor will have, you know, he's in character and you have a bunch of people that you're trying to track as a writer and as a director, but that actor may have a special line on what his character might actually do or think or feel or say or what would feel natural to him to pull off as an actor. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing happens all the time. And somebody like Shakespeare is going to, I keep hearing my voice. Like, I hear it, your voice. Double. I also hear it. Oh. It's like on, on a phone call. Shakespeare, I think, being an artist and an actor's writer would be sensitive to that sort of thing and tweaking things based on the acting troupe that he had at any given time as much as anything. Things evolve. Yeah, and we see that with the... Yeah, we see that here with Hamlet with the 1603, 1604, the changes that are between the sources. And I guess the lesson that you can take from that... Not, I don't guess. The lesson we take from that is that one, it's really dangerous to have that cult of genius. And we see that in the way that even today we think of Shakespeare as this perfect artifact from the past. And I think that we lose the fact that it was made by a man. And there can be really obvious things in these plays that make it very clear it was written by a living, breathing human being. I mean, you read Romeo and Juliet, 
And the first scene is just full of pretty risque humor, right? Mm. I mean, this was not a perfect individual, but he wrote some of the greatest stories that we have today. And um, there just really is a danger in, I think, approaching anything outside of scripture as though it's uh, perfect and God-breathed and inspired from the beginning of time. Yeah. And that is a way... That is the way a lot of people approach things like this. I think the other thing you have to understand that's implicit in what you guys have been saying is there was an audience and they would laugh at one thing and not laugh at another and right. respond to something. And like this has been honed and things have been cut. And this is like what survived because people liked it. So that Romeo and Juliet scene, like that's what the people thought was funny. Right. Yeah. For for better or worse, all those lines got laughs. That's why they're there. I don't know how Shakespeare ultimately felt about those lines. I do know that they worked on stage. Yeah. Yep. So any comedian who goes on a comedy club tour is going to be, always be tweaking and writing and rewriting his material based on the responses that he gets. Right. And unless you're Andy Kaufman or Norm MacDonald or some crazy person, you, you don't keep things in that that don't get a response. Most, most people aren't performance art. Certainly Shakespeare was not a performance artist who was in it to, to just make some kind of artistic statement. You, yep. you leave things in because they make people cry because they make people laugh because they get the intended response. And so everything in a play like Hamlet has been honed in order to move you to have a reaction. And if it, and occasionally you, something... <laughs> sorry, Occasionally, there's something in there that gets an unintended response, and then you make a decision to lean into that or lean away from it. I mean, I think you see that kind of thing happen in Shakespeare all the time, actually, especially with the humor, which which to our modern sensibilities can seem very out of place. But you you just have to imagine, like, well, that this was played by an actor that people responded to, and they were laughing. So let's keep it going. Let's add another line in. Let's do another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. But yeah, and going off what you said, these were plays that were meant to be enjoyed. And I think one of the best ways to experience a Shakespeare play is to watch it. Amen. They weren't meant to be... Uh, Shakespeare wasn't thinking about his work surviving. In his sonnets, there are signs that he was thinking about those potentially surviving, but not not as, you know, these were plays. He wasn't... The printing press even wasn't at the point where they were imagining, where he was imagining that this would last for forever. And so these were meant to be performed. They were meant to be watched and enjoyed. And that's the best way to see a Shakespeare is the way he intended it. So, yeah, I um, mean, there are things that barely work without it. I mean, reading Hamlet, you're just going to get, they fight, exit. And, well, that doesn't really feel very dramatic. Yeah. And after even, all this build up. Yeah. And even, I mean, with Hamlet's his longest play, but it's still great. So, yeah. A lot of fun. Well, we'll talk about the versions that we've watched in preparation for this and who we think is the best Hamlet and all that kind of stuff. And we'll examine the play in greater detail. But speaking of details, we have got to remember the great detail of shouting out all our patrons, the people who make this show possible. They go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. They give a small amount every month, and it enables us to do this show. And for the right amount, $10 a month, you can be part of the Donor Shoutout Club. And what happens is 
I say your name, and then Jake and or Brandon says a drink from Starbucks that they think you most resemble. And so we'll start it out with Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Well, Coffee. I mean, yeah. I was going to say uh, caramel macchiato because that's what my mom always gets. Mm. You would know. Yeah. yeah, that's true. You would know. All right, Jake. Who do you think the artful Anthony Dodger resembles? I think he resembles himself. I mean, what what coffee do you? I'm sorry, I, I misphrased the question. Coffee, no Shakespeare in my coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The immortal Chelsea E. What's just a little bit of scotch in it? Cafe Americano. Yeah, little Anthony cigar store. Coffee. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Blonde roast. Lily of the Valley. Coffee. Andrew Nest of the Lovebirds. Featured Starbucks dark roast coffee. Ooh, the featured Starbucks dark roast coffee. The Keith Master. Coffee. David Madman Trucking. Cappuccino. John Julia Ben Max. Coffee. Jane Katie or Cold Love Cheese. And also C.S. Lewis. Good until we have faces. Flat white. <laughs> Flat white? <Paint? laughs> you got some paint colors in there? <laughs> says here it's a smooth ristretto shots of espresso. Get the perfect amount of steamed oh, milk to create a not too long, not too creamy, just right flavor. What you need you to do at Starbucks is get a pour over a clover if they if they have it so that you don't get something that's burnt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. or just go to a, go support your local coffee shop, folks. I don't mean to yep. be that guy, but why go to Starbucks? Uh Fair Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Coffee. John's Rhyme, Adam. Pistachio latte. Nathan not me. Nathan. Ryan Lavrette Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Cinnamon Dolce Latte. DJ Sammy G. Coffee. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Peppermint White Chocolate Mocha. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Coffee. Professor and Lady. What in the world are you doing? Eggnog Latte. Let's, let's, I'm, put, I'm putting the two times speed on this, Nathan. The Fair and oh, two times fragrant, like two times slower, two times <laughs> faster. Chloe, all right, uh, that would make me back up to normal. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan coffee, caramel brulee latte, eggnog latte, chestnut praline latte, honey oak mill latte. Keep They're going. Right. Golden Haze Life over to the pursuit of cheese. You're just a Jeffrey coffee. the Texas Ranger. Coffee. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Toasted white chocolate. chocolate of Dragon coffee. Timothy the Red. Starbucks. American Kate the Game. Coffee. Warm and love bees. Maddie, 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 Coffee. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Tyler the Keeper. I'm going to now read the star ratings of all the local Starbucks. You will never believe what book Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, has decided that we are going to be reading next year. I'll tell you uh, off mic because we're not ready to announce it yet, but I'm just going to say it's going to be something. Yeah. Okay. Where were we? Cold ready Steel Cody. Jacqueline the Librarian Barbarian. John Bombadilla Bombdiggity and Captain Daniel, his mate. Coffee. Thanks, coffee. Alex. Coffee. Thanks, Alex. That's you're getting it. Danny. It's coffee. 
Dracula. Texas Dracula drinking coffee. And finally, of course, Jeremy the Dark Hood, Lord of Death, and his brooding pride. Public service announcement. Cornwall is a county, not a city. Oh, yeah, that was a one-star moment. Whose fault was that? Probably mine. They're always mine. I had a teacher named Mrs. Cornwall. We've heard about her. Yep. I called her Mrs. Cromwell. It was a very historically literate insult. And then she got Bethany Stuntman's in trouble for some reason. (sighs) All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Sweet. Good night, sweet princes and princesses. Alas. To sleep no more. My cat gets concerned when we yell for Maya. Uh-huh. She always comes running. Well, goodbye, what's cat. It's the book. What's the book? I'll tell you as soon as I stop recording. <laughs>